0: Are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash Fiction. When my daughter was only three, my husband at the time was diagnosed with cancer. It was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which thankfully has a high survival rate, tending to target young and very fit people. After months of heroin chemo and all its side effects, and let me tell you, they are way worse than the disease, we got the all clear. It had been a terrible year, but one of the things you don't always expect is the way that people react when either yourself or a close loved one gets a cancer diagnosis. It is like a magic switch has flipped. Suddenly, a woman at work, who had been noticeably hostile towards me, started treating me kindly. Once my husband got the all clear, she went back to her unfriendly antagonism. Most people, thankfully, treaded round me lightly and were as supportive as possible. However, there were the rather strange reactions. My mother on the phone telling me how hard my husband's cancer diagnosis was on her. The intern at work, who seemed to think I wasn't grateful enough she'd taken on some of my work. Or the day after the diagnosis, when I woke up with no energy to move and told my line manager I couldn't come in. The email one of the company directors sent, implying I was taking advantage of the situation. After the all clear, people were surprised that I did not want to write about it. I was a regular in the Edinburgh poetry scene at that point, and many poets have written eloquently about their experiences with cancer or losing a loved one to it. Elegies by Douglas Dunn is a particularly good example. I, however, had no wish to relive the experience or dwell in that particular past. I wanted to move on and get on with my life, forgetting what had happened. Some people appear to find this wish of mine odd, I got the sense that I was meant to wear going through chemotherapy with my husband and toddler daughter as some kind of defining characteristic when I saw it as just an experience like any other, a bad one, but something to be gone through and out the other side of. In my memory, it's rather overshadowed by my subsequent separation and divorce from that husband The year after he got the all clear, a process which was unnecessarily drawn out and antagonistic, more akin to guerrilla warfare rather than the firebombing of chemo, taking much more of an emotional toll on me and damaging my health. Of course, even having this position is a privilege in itself. Had my daughter been made fatherless at such a young age, I would not have had the luxury of deciding how much I would allow this episode to define me. I still do not talk much about the time when cancer defined my whole family life, not because I am suppressing negative emotions and memories, not because I would be upset by talking about it, but purely because I do not care to be defined by it especially given that when cancer comes knocking, there is a set of expectations, beliefs and assumptions that start immediately coming into play around who you are now, what you think, what you feel, now that you have cancer hanging over your head. It is exactly that set of expectations and beliefs that Bell Gibson, now branded Australia's most hated woman played into. She was what we now call Insta-famous, before anyone had coined the term Insta-famous. She looked exactly as you would expect an influencer to look, young, blonde, glowing skin and shiny hair, well-dressed. Not really the picture of someone with cancer, pale, frail and losing hair. She amassed a huge amount of followers with her story of beating brain cancer by focusing not on traditional chemotherapy, but on a whole food diet. She launched an app, The Whole Pantry, and a recipe book. She raised money for charities and other families dealing with cancer she was fated by celebrities, magazines and won awards. This is never where a true crime story ends though. As well as being able to ignore the mismatch between her health status and her looks, people also failed to notice that despite having claimed to have cured her own cancer with diet, the cancer and problems around cancer kept on spreading to other parts of her body meaning it wasn't quite as much of a cure as was touted. In The Women Who Fooled the World, Beau Donnelly and Nick Toscano dissect as much as they can about Belle. The Instagram posts, the claims of cancer and other medical problems, the friendships that started intensely and ended abruptly, They then covered the discovery that Belle was indeed lying and had never been diagnosed with cancer. She also had not passed on the funds that she had been raising for other charities and people who legitimately had cancer. It was really small things that started not adding up for people around Belle. Things like seeing someone else they know go through cancer treatment and realising that it looked nothing like Belle's life. When confronted, Belle was slippery. Donnelly and Toscano recount the ways in which she tried to wiggle out of the predicament she had found herself in. She claimed she had been told she had cancer by a doctor and was misdiagnosed. But as the questioning of Belle becomes more critical and journalistic, then it was harder and harder for her to find ways out. In 2017, she was fined 240,000 by the Australian government and faced five breaches of consumer law. She, however, did not pay the fine and her house was raided in 2020 to try and seize property to pay it off. Wisely, Donnelly and Toscano did not end the book with Bell's downfall, but with more analysis of why she was successful, how this has impacted other people, and most of all, those who are really living with the prognosis of cancer, which is terminal. The answer is totally understandable anger. The writers go further and wonder why such fraudsters are popular and especially popular among young women. It is likely that young women saw something of themselves in Belle. She was an aspirational figure. Not that people would aspire to have cancer, but that she could look good Achieve success, have a business, a partner, and child, gorgeous clothes, lovely holidays, and renown, all while battling and seemingly winning out with cancer. The woman can have it all narrative has been around for a good few decades, and it does tend to be younger women who end up falling for it. They are yet to figure out that you can have it all but you can't have it all at once without paying a price for it one way or another. There is another reason I think that women are so likely to be taken in by fraudsters like Gibson. Last year, I had a small scare. Nothing serious. I had a swelling in my breast and it was really painful to wear clothes. A check-up at the doctor's got me some antibiotics, but they didn't improve anything. So next, I was sent to the breast clinic for examination, mammogram and ultrasound. During the ultrasound, I was told there was no lumps and no problems. So why was it so painful, I asked. The consultant, a woman, looked at me, smiled and put a comforting hand on my shoulder. Sometimes women just have pain, was the answer. Gaslighting is a term that is used to describe when someone in a planned and deliberate way tries to undermine another person's sanity. It is actually pretty rare, but it does happen. The problem at the moment is that the way people are co-opting this term to sometimes describe things that are much more benign, such as having a different point of view or set of values. Normal difference between individuals can, under volatile circumstances, be turned into proof of a mendacious and calculated plot. Medical gaslighting is a term that is used to describe the way that people in the medical profession have a tendency to dismiss or minimise the symptoms that women suffer from. Gaslighting is the wrong term to use here, as I'm pretty sure those who work in healthcare are not coordinating an incredibly sophisticated attack against all women to make them feel insane. But it is rather a culmination of centuries of patriarchy and misogyny erupting like a boil into its own symptoms in the field of health. Most of my friends have at least one, if not more, stories of when health professionals have dismissed them or their symptoms. Don't get me wrong, I was relieved there was nothing more serious going on, but women just have pain is a worrying attitude to hear, and one that has the potential to increase health inequalities and therefore inequalities in general. For most women, this dismissal often starts when they start their period, something that society makes sure you know is shameful and taboo to talk about openly. The pain that young women go through is often difficult and severe and can often be dismissed. For example, it takes on average 10 years for the extremely debilitating condition endometriitis to be diagnosed. That is 10 years to diagnose an incredibly painful condition that 1 in 10 women in the UK suffer from. Given that this dismissal of pain from an early age is one that most women will go through or watch a friend or loved one go through, Perhaps this is why women are more likely to listen to someone who seems to be like them and understands their lives, rather than faceless institutions where they feel they struggle to be heard. This, however, in no way excuses the actions of Gibson. The careers of those who had unquestioningly bought her story were damaged or lost. The family of a child who was really suffering from cancer was shunned and shamed because of their association with her, and the faith and trust of her friends was shattered. This is all without knowing how many people may have stopped medical treatment for cancer's with the hope that they too, like Belle, could heal themselves with smoothies and whole food. She also fed the rapacious myths that some people believe that those who are disabled or chronically ill are somehow malingering or lazy, trying to pull the wool over others' eyes while living in ease and luxury. It is a dangerous and dehumanizing attitude which directly harms people, and an attitude that Gibson has helped survive for just that little bit longer. One of the most interesting parts of the book, though, is when Donnelly and Toscan speak to Gibson's mother and stepfather, while it's very hard to sympathize with Gibson when hearing what her mother is like one can reach some kind of understanding of how a young child could get set on a path which ultimately led her to the position she's in now. One of the strengths of The Woman Who Fooled the World is that it's not just a hatchet job on Gibson. Yes, it does in detail take down her claims and thoroughly debunk them, However, what is important is that it firmly reminds us that Gibson was only able to succeed in her fraud because of the machines around her, unregulated social media and a journalism and publishing industry that did not fact check. I add to this list healthcare where women's experience is easily dismissed or misunderstood. there will be other Gibsons. There are already other Gibsons, people who take others' fears and try to use them to turn a profit, control and prop up their own ego. It's also not just in cancer treatment, but with so many illnesses that people suffer from, which can be degenerative or debilitating, altering someone's quality of life greatly. If we're honest with ourselves, we all want some kind of medical fairy tale for these things. A silver bullet, one fruit, one diet, one alternative therapy that can save us from an end with misery and pain. That is human nature and will probably never change. But what we can do is... Make sure that social media is regulated, journalistic rigour is back in fashion, and work towards people feeling their relationship with their healthcare providers is one of collaboration rather than hierarchy.